is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, hello. It's nice to have you with me, Michelle Stanley, along with you for the Country Hour today. And this half hour, we've been hearing a lot about Sun Cable, the big plan to send renewable energy from the NT to Asia. This week, the company went into voluntary administration. And they still hope it'll continue, but some within the industry think there are bigger hurdles facing the company than just the money. The distance we're talking about under the sea is longer than the distance that it would need, you would need to connect Canada to the United Kingdom. We shouldn't just assume because a couple of people have an idea that it's going to work. You hear about some of that doubt left in the Sun Cable project shortly. Also, do you recycle? No judgement, but I wonder whether recycling your household waste or even your farm waste, is it something you think about? If you're on a banana farm, or if you've ever driven past one, you might know the big plastic bags in the trees. They aren't recyclable. Before 1.30, you'll meet a man hoping to change that. You know, I'd, I'd estimate that there's about 20 million bags used a year, and say, uh, you know, four times use about five million would be sent to landfill uh, each year they can't be recycled because of the mixed polymers and also they have a lot of paint on them it's a huge issue you'll hear about those plans to turn it all around before half past one if you'd like to get in touch with the program today 0487 1057 is the sms First up, though, the Mayor of Catherine is calling for the NT government to bring forward plans to build a second high-level bridge over the Catherine River. It comes after the bridge at Fitzroy Crossing was washed away in flooding last week, cutting off the East Kimberley from the rest of Western Australia, potentially for months to come. There are plans, or long-term plans, to build a second bridge. It's as part of a heavy vehicle bypass around Catherine, but that's about 15 years away. Liz Clark is the mayor of Catherine. Why does the town need another bridge? Well, we need a second high-level bridge because of the development that is happening in Catherine, uh, both out at the base and surrounding area. It is the only bridge that we have. I mean, we have the low level bridge, which is only small, it's very old, and it can only hold 20 tonne. Um, we do need another uh, bridge crossing of some sort, and I think Fitzroy Crossing has really highlighted that fact um, because now they you know, they, they, they've lost their bridge uh, and so they, they have no other way of getting across. How urgently do you think Catherine needs this new bridge? I think urgently as in in the next few years rather than, um, I'm not quite sure when the uh, proposal for the alternative route um, was going to happen because it was 20 years. I think it's moved up a bit, but I think it needs to move a little bit quicker considering the development that's happening around Catherine. What would the impact be if the bridge, if the Catherine Bridge was cut in, you know, in, in a flooding event like we've seen in Fitzroy Crossing? What would the, that impact be if the Catherine Bridge was cut to the Territory? Um, if the Catherine Bridge is cut, then no one can go anywhere. The only way we can get anything in is um, by flying 
things in because um, in the 98 flood, it was cut altogether. Um, so, you know, this, I mean, a weather event can happen at any time. So, and, and because the weather events are so unpredictable, you just don't know when it's going to happen again. How much would a new bridge cost? Uh, millions of dollars. I, you know, it's not going to be cheap. Um, these bridges, um, and I, I know that most bridges cost quite, you know, we were looking millions of dollars to build. Uh, we built a small bridge for a Mangalan Road that was um, $4 million. So, you know, and that's only a small one. So I can imagine that a bigger bridge, and of course it depends on where it goes and, you know, where it's put and how high they put it. On the Country Hour, Elizabeth Clark is with you. She's the Mayor of Catherine, and we're talking about uh, calls to build a second high-level bridge in Catherine or to bring plans forward to build a second high-level bridge. In 2008, Catherine Mayor at the time, and Shepherd called for a heavy vehicle bypass around Catherine to be fast-tracked. So that was 15 years ago. So why hasn't a new bridge been built yet? Um, I think there was a few issues, and I think at the time uh, we the development we didn't have as much development as what's happening now here in Catherine. So um, yeah, and I think also the cost. Um, you know, it's not going to be a cheap exercise. Um, it, and I think as with as with any development, there are other things identified, like the the um, transport hub and things like that, that will make it. Uh, necessary to have the alternative route. So you're calling for it. You, you you understand that it's not going to be a cheap exercise. How hopeful are you that this is actually going to happen? You know, how, how likely is it going to be in, in, say, five years that Catherine does have a second high-level bridge? I think we uh, that that's a discussion that we'll still have to have. But I think Fitzroy Crossing weather event has highlighted the fact that that if this bridge here goes out, no one will be going anywhere in the Territory. Uh, you know, you won't be able to get through Catherine at all. So to rely on one bridge is, is um, you know, we need to have a second bridge that we can utilise if this one's out. And it's not just the impact on Catherine and, and that region, but the broader Territory would be impacted if that was to, to get cut, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We have the, you know, this bridge, the increase in traffic uh, uh, in road trains and everything else coming across that bridge is is, um, is quite large. And so we do need to look at, at having another alternative route. Looking at how the bridge in Fitzroy crossing buckled and then collapsed in these floods, have you looked to make sure that the current Catherine Bridge could hold up to a big flood like that? Um, I believe there are regular inspections done on that bridge. So, um, you know, and, and you say because it needs to, particularly with, as I said, with the increase in traffic that we have. Liz Clark, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today. Thank you very much for your invitation. She's the Mayor of Catherine, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this topic. How quickly would you like to see a new high-level bridge built in Catherine and where? Would you like to see it go? Text in on zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven. A second high level bridge for the Catherine River. Uh, Liz Clark, the mayor of Catherine, is calling for it. 
What do you reckon? Where should it go? And how quickly would you like to see it happen? 0487 1057. Let's have some new music now from Sarah Stora and her brother Greg. The album is called Stora. From it, this is Dust Kids. That's Sarah and Greg Storer from the new album Stora. Uh, you can listen online if you like to stream your music, um, but that one is called Dust Kids. It's 18 to 1. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators, and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. A few texts coming through on the topic of the Catherine River and whether there should be a second bridge built or at least fast track. There is a plan for a heavy vehicle bypass around Catherine. That would include a second bridge, but it's still about 15 years away. And earlier you heard from Mayor Liz Clark, who says it needs to be fast-tracked, particularly given news from the Kimberley in the last week or so. I asked whether you think it's a good idea and where it should go uh, and how quickly you'd like to see it built. 0487 991057 is the text line. Uh, Scotty reckons the new bridge should go over the river. That's a good idea. I don't know whether they've thought of that one. Thanks, Scotty. Uh, And Alan says, on the necessity for defence alone, a second bridge across the Catherine River is essential. Otherwise, we're stuffed for all commodities unless freighted in by air or sea. It's stupid it's not happening already. Thank you for that, Alan. And Gary says it would be a good idea to bitumise the entire Tanami for wet weather access to the Kimberley. Certainly heard that one before. Thank you, Gary, for getting in touch. You can too. 0487 1057 is the text line. How you going? It's uh, Brian. I'm the local tow truck driver out at Daily Waters and the fixer of broken things out here. And welcome everyone to the Country Hour. Good to have you on the program. Michelle Stanley with you today. And there's been a lot of hopeful discussion lately about the future of Sun Cable. That's the massive solar power and battery project which had planned to send renewable energy from the NT to Singapore. The company went into voluntary administration this week with an apparent disagreement between its two billionaire backers, Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks. There's still hope from within the NT government and broader energy industry that it will still go ahead, but not everyone sees it that way. Matthew Warren is an energy analyst. He's the former chief of the Australian Energy Council and Clean Energy Council. Matthew Warren, what was your reaction when you heard the news from Sun Cable this week? Look, I guess I probably wasn't surprised. I've a number of people in the industry have held some doubts about the credibility of Sun Cable being a viable project for a number of years. Um, So, I mean, there's still talk of people trying to resuscitate the project, but I think it will be challenging for it to succeed in in the current market. There are a lot of people, particularly in the Northern Territory, very keen to see this project go ahead. What are some of the challenges that you see are in the way for it to be a successful project? Look, I think it's just um, so far outside 
what the global electricity industry currently does. So there are undersea cables. There's one connecting Victoria to Tasmania. There's undersea cables across the North Sea and in Europe and, and other parts of the world. So we do connect bits of the world to other bits of the world with undersea cables. But the distances on those cables are generally a few hundred kilometres. Um, and that's not because people haven't thought of going further, but the longer the cable runs under the ocean, the bigger the risks. So the cost increases. And if there are faults with the cable, then they take longer to repair. So it's, it's not that the electricity industry hasn't thought of very long undersea cables, but nobody's gotten close to making them work. Someone has to be the first, though. Why couldn't it be some cable? Well, uh, it, you could have the same view on flying cars. I mean, it, it's it, everything's theoretically possible. And yes, in theory, you could make this work and maybe you could find ways. But, but you'll, you'll be doing, you'll be putting cable in oceans that have never, it's never gone before. So the waters between Darwin and Singapore, are, many of them are extremely deep. And I think the course of Sun Cable tries to avoid them as much as possible, but it's still going through very deep water. So you want the cable to sit on the ocean floor for 25 years, facing hundreds of bar of pressure, you know, two, two kilometres under the sea. And that, that places enormous physical stresses on the cable. Now, you can, in theory, make that work and maybe get through, but it's 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 outside the sort of the comfort zone of conventional undersea cable laying, and I'm just not sure the Singaporeans are particularly interested in being the guinea pigs in an experiment of this scale. I mean, we don't for, in Australia, for example, the people have talked about building a transmission line connecting connecting the national electricity market, South Australia to Western Australia. That hasn't been built because it's not cost effective. That's half the distance of Sun Cable. And they're sort of, you know, those markets are much more relatable and so it's much cheaper to build. The, the distance we're talking about under the sea is longer than the distance that it would need, you would need to connect Canada to the United Kingdom. Now, in, I haven't done the, the maths on it, but I would have thought a Canada, a Canada UK connection would have a lot more going for it commercially. Than, than somewhere from Darwin to the, to Singapore. I just think it's it, it it's a, we've come to assume that this is a great idea because it's being proposed, but I don't think when you compare it to the way we are developing and deploying electricity systems around the world, this is a, a really extreme outlier. And for those reasons, I think it will struggle in any tender process in Singapore. You've also written about the challenges with the location. Can you go through what your concerns are there? Well, look, I mean, I think that the Northern Territory has really fantastic solar resources. And just logically, the way the world rotates is that it's the sun sets in the east before it sets in the west. So if you have a solar farm located an hour or two hours west of a load centre, then it's still generating as the sun has already set in a place like Sydney. Now, from a logical perspective, if, you know, I've always thought that if you were going to scale up renewables in Australia, one of the serious options may be to develop very large scale solar across Central Australia through the Territory and, and dispatch that into Brisbane and Sydney because 
the sun is still shining when the sun is set in those markets. Now, that's a lot cheaper and a lot simpler to do than to attach batteries, which are very expensive, to that, that energy and then run it through an extremely long and expensive undersea cable to Singapore. So if you can't make the maths work on selling solar from the Territory into Brisbane and Sydney, then how can you make the maths work selling it to Singapore? On the Country Hour, you're hearing from Matthew Warren, an energy expert, and we're talking about Sun Cable and some of the challenges that project uh, could be facing aside from the financial issues going into voluntary administration this week. Um, Matthew, does this need to be reassessed or does this need to be scrapped entirely? Well, it's up to the owners. I mean, it's up to them what they want to do. They've been running with this idea for five years. Um, and so really, really, it's in their court. But I, I just think it is important that in, the, in this really important debate about transformation, that we, we are sort of take a critical eye and scrutinise all these big ideas. Because inevitably, when you're going through technical transformation, failure is the norm. Most things don't work and occasionally things do work. So we need to be clear that we're going to try things that don't work and occasionally hit, hit success. Um, and that success doesn't tend to come overnight. Solar panels were a 50-year overnight sensation and now they're kind of transforming the world. So we do have the opportunity to, to really exploit these, these, these new technologies. But we shouldn't just assume because a couple of people have an idea that it's going to work. And if they want to proceed with that, that's up to them. That's all power to them. But we shouldn't assume that just because they're proposing that, that it's technically and sort of on a risk basis uh, a credible idea. Now, you know, if I'm wrong, fantastic. If they can get this energy delivered to the Singaporeans in a way where they think they can deliver it without risk and the Singaporeans buy it, then I'll eat my words. No problems. But I think that that's unlikely. Matthew Warren, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today. Thanks, Michelle. He's a clean energy, sorry, he's an energy analyst and the former chief executive of the Clean Energy Council and also the Australian Energy Council. It's nine to one. Hi, I'm Linda Ford from Twin Hill Station on the Finnis River floodplain and you're listening to the Country Hour. The WA government has activated its state emergency response for animal welfare situations to help its officers work through the aftermath of the Fitzroy Valley floods. It's expected tens of thousands of cattle will have died in the floods across the Kimberley. Pastoralists say it's still too early to put figure, a figure on the losses. Jackie Jarvis is the new WA Ag Minister. She was in Broome yesterday. She spoke with media about the state government's response to the event. DPER, Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, always plays an animal welfare role in all emergencies, whether it's bushfire or flooding. So DPER have been on the ground since day one. We have activated the state emergency response for animal welfare situations, which then gives DPER some, some more powers in regard to euthanising livestock um, where, where needed. Do you know how many livestock have been euthanised so far? So look, pastoral stations um, will have managed a lot of the, the humane euthanisation of cattle where it's, where it's on their properties. So pastoral stations, that's, that's sort of business as usual where, where animals are in distress. I understand that deep herd um, at this stage has only been 14, 14 cattle euthanised by deep herd staff. Where the cattle are, have access to fresh water and we can still do hay drops, then those cattle are, you know, are, are being looked after. 
It's only where we have cattle who um, have no access to fresh water. We cannot get hay drops in because they might be standing in water, so we can't get hay drops. And we're just to make sure that those animals aren't suffering. So at this stage, DPIRD staff have dealt with 14. Um, pastoralists will have dealt with, with many more. Is the government looking at any longer-term support or any financial support for pastoralists? Yeah, look, absolutely. So pastoralists are businesses, and um, I'm also obviously the Minister for Small Business. So those Commonwealth state funding arrangements for disaster relief will actually you know, cover lots of businesses, including pastoral stations. Um, I've been meeting with the pastoral industry up here for the last couple of days, and I've committed that we will do whatever we can to, to support them. So we will be looking at where those announcements have been made to actually make sure that they they meet the challenges of pastoral stations. Will the stock losses have a knock-on effect to shortages at um, grocery stores? Look, my, the stock losses up here, so obviously the cattle up here would generally go out to live export. So Northern Cattle um, goes out to live export. The Kimberley Meat, Meat Company process cattle for the domestic market and also for export market, probably more in that ground beef market. My bigger concern, I met with Kimberley Meat Company this morning, our bigger concern is to make sure that they can keep operating. So they had, um, they lost quite a few thousand head of livestock out of their yards, so they, they don't know if they're alive or dead, they've lost a few thousand head of cattle that were ready to be processed. Their actual abattoir facilities hasn't been impacted by flood, but if you don't have cattle to process, they're a significant employer in the Derby region. So they employ about 100 people in the Derby region. They were due to start processing those animals um, this week. So there is concern that they cannot get enough cattle to keep that facility open. We need to do whatever we can. Where we have local businesses who can keep operating, we need to do what we can. So I've met with Kimberley Meat Company today. I've met with um, the Kimberley Peelbrook Cattlemen's Association um, to actually say, let, let's have a think about how we might be able to get cattle to the Kimberley Meat Company, which is located between Broome and Derby because we want to actually keep those facilities going. So where we can get cattle processed, we want to do that because, as I said, um, the meat industry is an important economic driver. So there's not likely to be any price fluctuation in Perth or interstate at supermarkets as a result of this vote? For beef? Not that I, I, I couldn't envisage that, but I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell you, no. There is a concern, however, with regard to horticultural produce moving forward in that we need to make sure that our horticulturalists in the north even though they're not imp impacted now, we need to make sure that they can actually get their product to market. We have significant horticultural businesses in Kununurra and the Broome region, and we need to make sure that moving forward in, in, in coming months that we can actually get that fresh produce back into Perth. That's an important market for those producers. I've heard there are some growers in that Ord River area that have been caught with the um, the floods impacting their freight routes, so we'll keep an eye on that. That's Jackie Jarvis. She's the WA Ag Minister, was speaking in Broome to media yesterday. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Four to one. A machinery dealer says John Deere's MOU to allow US farmers the right to repair their tractors won't have an immediate impact in Australia. For many new high-tech tractors which have a lot of computers in them, farmers have no choice but to go to John Deere to get them fixed when they break down. They can't go to a third party. Jeff Jakes from ROD Equipment, which owns tractor dealer Vanderfield, says he doesn't think John Deere will replicate its US deal in Australia. 
I'm certainly not concerned. I think I think farmers have had the right to repair in uh, their equipment for a long time now. Um, they've certainly been encouraged uh, by John Deere and and by the dealer groups. And uh, the the memorandum of understanding uh, to me uh, is, and not that I'm an expert on it by any means, but it's a formalisation of uh, of uh, a standing commitment by John Deere in the US to the farmers and over there. So um, I don't have a lot of information on the detail, but I do know how we handle our relationships and our uh, dealings with our customers in Australia, but uh, I don't know that there's any impact to us at this stage. Okay, so have you heard anything from John Deere about any potential implications in Australia? Does it set a precedent, I guess, that we could leverage off and follow suit? No, I've heard nothing from John Deere uh, at this stage. And, and understanding it's only fairly newly announced. And so we don't have any sort of arrangements similar to this in Australia at the moment. So do you think there's potential now for that to kind of start the ball rolling and, and we'll see something like this in the next little while here in Australia? I guess I can't comment um, on what John Deere may or may not do here. I don't think so, but... Uh, I do know that John Deere uh, has uh, been working with the industry bodies in Australia for some time now, uh, collaborating and and um, and understanding the concerns uh, both from the farmers and and the representatives mm. on a national level and a, and a local level. So uh, I don't know what would change um, and how that is different to what the US does now in terms of uh, this agreement uh, being um, formalised. So. Time will tell, I guess. Um, there are a lot of tools already available through John Deere and through dealers like RDO uh, for customers to already do a lot of self-repair, uh, and that's what John Deere is terming um, the uh, that capability now. And self-repair has been available for many, many years, and there's a lot of uh, technical information as well as technical tools that customers have had access to for some time. There are a lot of resources already available online um, and through the dealers. John Deere and the dealers uh, certainly encourage um, the ability for a farmer to be able to repair his own equipment. So then speaking hypothetically here, if something similar was to happen in Australia, you don't think it would have too much of an impact on the way things are currently operating here anyway? I can't see um, that myself, but, you know, we... We certainly keep working with everyone who uh, has an interest in this so that we have a great outcome for everyone. Jeff Jakes from RDO Equipment speaking with Madeline McCosker. I'll catch you after the news. It's one o'clock. Hello, my name is John Ryan. Yeah, I just became a ranger and really excited to be a ranger. <laughs> and you listening to Country Hour. Hello, hello. Michelle Stanley, ending the week with you. I hope you're well. Do you recycle? No judgment, but I wonder whether whether it's at home or maybe on your farm, recycling, is it something you really think about? If you're on a banana farm or if you've ever driven past one, you might have noticed those big plastic bags in the trees. They aren't recyclable and there are an awful lot of them. You know, I'd, I'd estimate that there's about 20 million bags used a year and say, uh, you know, four times 
use, so about 5 million would be sent to landfill uh, each year. They can't be recycled because of the mixed polymers and also they have a lot of paint on them. You'll hear one solution to that issue before half past one and if you would like to get in touch with the program today, 0487 991057 is the SMS, 0487 It's six past one. Let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Sally Cutter is with you. And I've seen some incredible rainfall totals um, in, well, various parts of the Territory. What have we had in the last 24 hours, Sally? Oh, Dedeme had 76 millimetres, so there's been some pretty good falls out there. Sunshine Ball, 70.6, Conway, 65 millimetres, so that's in the Daly, the Victoria and the Roper River basins. The, and then Biridudu had 63, Lakefield 56, the Roper River at Mataranka 51.5, Forlock Ponds 38, up in Adelaide River 30, 38 as well, Maranboy Hill 36, Dry River had 33, Maud Creek 32.5, Mount Felix 30.6, Dildren Hill 30, then Rabbit, even Rabbit Flats had a good dump of rain for 28 millimetres. Wow, the so tunnel, I wonder what will happen to the road closure out there if it's still getting that amount of rain in that part of the world. Yeah, the, the, probably the good thing is this is now more through your showers and storms rather than the widespread of rain that we were getting with the ex-cyclone. So it's, there's going to be sunny gaps in there. So it's not like it's a cloudy all day and things. The things should be drying out. You're just probably not overly great dumping more water onto the area. We have had a text from Nikki in Mataranka on 0487991057. She says, 59 mils here and 60 just up the road. I live next to the Little Roper but haven't been down to look yet. Uh, she said that it had been very hot and dry for a week, so it was a really nice break. So thanks for that, Nikki. Um, but, yeah, it just goes to what you were saying about how it hasn't been ongoing rainfall, a little bit of a break here and there. So what can we expect over the, the next few days then? Over the next few days in the southern parts we're going to see it's a, a little bit of clearance but it's not going to totally clear so we might be to some areas with no showers and storms in there but we're still going to see the slight chance of showers and storms across the southern half and that's really going to continue. There might be little bits of clearance but not much. Most, But the main focus moves back up north. We've got a trough developing across the, the basically south of the top end through the Carpentaria and Gregory districts and that's going to deepen and freshen the winds a little bit across the coastal waters but also increase the showers and storms over the top end and through the those districts and a little, little bit still feeding down into the Barkley as well but in northern Tanami but it's going to be the top, the northern half that's now going to see most of the rainfall. And what kind of rainfall is forecast? Uh, we're looking, we could see some, still see some of those really big totals the, like that one, those ones that we saw at Delamere today. So we could see isolated falls up to 100 millimetres, but generally they're going to be sort of probably around that 20 to 50 millimetre mark. And Central Australia, with all the action happening up in the north, what's going to happen down in the south? Uh, it's just going to be those isolated showers and storms around. There's a few storms at the moment, so in the south east parts of the Tanami, 
but the Leicester's got a lot of little showers through it at the moment. So there's going to be that suggest that convective or the, the bubbly clouds producing those showers and storms down through there. As I said, some, there's going to be a little bit of clearance, but where it's, it's going to be clear, it's going to be moving around a little bit. So day to day, so each so you might get a day when nothing much happening. The Simpson district's pretty clear at the moment, so it'll probably be quiet there. But then, so that dryness or the quietness moves a bit further west, and then it's it sort of wobbles back and forward. So the continuation of those showers and storms, but we're definitely not going to see anything as heavy as we have seen in the last few weeks. And for people who have been busting to get out on the water, it's been pretty rubbish the last few weekends. Um, you mentioned the coastal waters were fresh. How are they looking this weekend? Okay, for the coastal waters, the if you're off the west coast, we're looking at 10 to 15 knots, reaching up to 20 knots offshore south of Channel Point tomorrow in the evening. And then Sunday, 15 to 20 knots out there. So that's probably not quite so good unless you actually want the wind and if you're in a small boat it's probably getting sort of a bit choppy or a bit, bit rough out there the north coast we're looking at 15 to 10 to 15 knots sorry reaching 20 knots east of Manangreta during tomorrow afternoon and 15 to 20 knots on Sunday and then round in the Gulf of Carpentaria the 10 to 15 knots northwesterly winds Darwin Harvest is looking at the winds up to 15 knots so it's, it's still a bit blowy there, there, but the harvest just going to be that little bit more sheltered. Sally, thank you very much. You have a lovely weekend. Will do, thanks. Sally Carter from the Bureau of Meteorology. It's 11 past one. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Michelle Stanley with you this Friday afternoon. Carbon markets have responded calmly to two big policy shifts this week. The first was the Chubb Review of the Carbon Credit System, which made a series of recommendations to improve its transparency and integrity. The second was the beefed-up safeguard mechanism that raises the bar for the country's major polluters to cut emissions, which will trigger greater demand for carbon credits. Carbon market analyst Brett Harper from Reputex says most in the industry seem to be happy with the changes. Well, I think in both instances, it's really increased the certainty for the carbon market. It's uh, reinforced that the existing uh, methodologies for creating the carbon offsets is fairly robust. I'm fairly impressed that the government has managed to kind of thread the policy needle and and design uh, some a really good scheme that I don't think should attract too many uh, legitimate complaints. In general, it's it's quite fair and transparent. And then they've also clarified what the liability is going to be for the largest emitters, and given them an emissions reduction trajectory going forward. So now they can, with more certainty, calculate what type of offsets they may need to uh, align with that trajectory. And in terms of the, the carbon market, what how did it respond in terms of the price? Uh, I think things have been up a little bit. 
uh, which is not, we're no giant moves yet. Uh, and, it's and still going to take a little while for the big compliance entities to work out how many credits they're going to need and then to find uh, sellers at, at the right price to, to procure those. Mm. And so they did make some changes. There were some methodologies in the farm sector which they just decided they wouldn't continue anymore. Is that significant, do you think? Uh, not as significant as you might think. Those were older methodologies that were going to be phased out anyway based on a baseline of 2010 with a 15-year crediting period. So that would have already come off over the next couple of years anyway by 2025. There still seems to be some big question marks. We spoke to Professor Richard Eckhart, he's quite well known in in that space. He seemed to think that farmers would be better off not selling their credits at all because, A, things might change if we get back into a drought cycle and, and the ability of the soil to hold carbon will diminish rapidly. And B, they're going to need their carbon credits to get to net zero themselves in order to uh, be able to sell into certain markets that require that or certain supply chains. Do they really need to hang on to their credits, do you reckon, instead of selling? I mean, it's probably good advice to to consider the long term and whether or not it's you know best value to sell those credits to someone else now or to retain those for your own use going forward. Um, obviously, farmers would be very familiar with, with drought cycles and would need to plan for the fact that a lack of rainfall does have some correspondence to how much carbon is being stored. Um, so there is some risk there. Many of them run livestock operations, which can have its own emissions, um, but much of that can be offset by by growing vegetation. Uh, so if you're looking to be a carbon-neutral cattle operation, you may not want to sell off all of your uh, soil carbon and vegetation credits and then be left not being able to reduce your own cattle emissions. What about the market? If you were just playing the market, you know, we have seen it at almost double where it is now, not that long ago. Is it likely to continue going up? Would farmers be better off holding on to their credits now with a view to selling later? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we expect the prices to go up. Uh, demand for the credits is what's driving that. As demand goes up, uh, the price will go up. Uh, it's not to say there won't be fluctuations along the way as things balance out, but generally we expect prices to go up. And looking at the mining sector or the big polluters, the energy sector, even big companies like Manildra or uh, Insightech Pivot, you know, the fertiliser manufacturer, which uses a lot of energy to do that. W- what do you think the ramping up of requirements for them uh, will do for their bottom line, for the econ- economics of their businesses? Well, it's going to depend on on specific circumstances at each facility. But generally, a lot of these companies have their own emissions reduction plans or net zero targets at some point in the future. Um, So if they don't yet have those plans in place, they should certainly see to that now and figure out uh, what their strategy is going to be to reduce or abate emissions going forward. That might not happen immediately, like in the first couple of years, uh, where offsets might be needed. But over the longer term, it's going to make a lot of sense to reduce your emissions and and make the appropriate investments along the way to do that. Carbon market analyst Brett Harper from Reputex. He was speaking with David Clawton, 17 past one. Just quickly, a new thoroughbred yielding record has been set at the Magic Millions sale on the Gold Coast, a two-year-old filly selling for 26 million dollars. Anthony Thompson is the owner of the filly named Widden. 
He told Amelia Bernasconi he was very proud of the result. Uh, oh, well, you know, it's a, a roller coaster. The build up um, and the pressure, you're never exactly sure what is going to transpire at, a, at an auction. Um, but to see the competition um, right around the ring from the major global players in the industry on that filly um, makes us very proud of, of you know, um, every, our whole team and everything we do at Widden. The combination of Zoo Star and Solar Charge, there was a lot of anticipation for this one. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this filly? Uh, well, obviously, we sold the full brother last year for $3 million, uh, at the East Ealing Sales to Coolmore. He was a pretty um, spectacular colt, and we thought this filly was every bit as good. Um, you know, there is a bit of a premium probably for a colt, so uh, our expectations um, uh, weren't, you know, quite to that level, or certainly... Um, we were thinking whether she'd make 1.5 or 2 million, but to see her make 2.6 um, in, a, in a you know a wonderful bidding duel was was really really exciting. Who actually bought her? Uh, she was bought by Yulong Stud in Victoria, um, which is a, a newer investment in the Australian industry or global industry in thoroughbreds. He's um, Mr. Zhang's from uh, China, from mainland China, and uh, he's been a major investor in bloodstock around the world um, for the last couple of years. What is it like as well, Anthony? Obviously, Zoo Star stands at Widden. You know, you must be so proud to see, you know, your own bloodlines doing so well. Yeah, as a, as a stallion, we invested heavily in uh, when we bought him and um, you know, we've been um, sort of all in uh, buying mares for him to support him and you know, a lot of investment, a lot of planning, a lot of work goes into it. So to see, uh, you know, the job Zoo Star's doing and these sort of results, you know, it really, really, really makes it worth it. That's the owner of Widden, Anthony Thompson from the New South Wales Hunter Valley. He was speaking with Amelia Bernasconi. Almost 1,280 horses will be auctioned as part of this year's sale. The sale ends on Monday. And you can read more about the Magic Million sale and this particular uh thoroughbred yearling record $2.6 million. There's a photo of the filly online at the ABC Rural website. It's 20 past one on the Country Hour. This is Travis Collins. It's Hometown Calling. Travis Collins, Hometown Calling, 25 past one. Hi, I'm Annie Harvey at the Bonning Yards just south of Alice Springs. Just waiting for some more road trains. You're listening to the Country Hour. If you've ever driven past a banana farm, you might have noticed huge plastic bags in the trees. They're used to protect the bunches of fruit. Unfortunately, the bags aren't recyclable, and millions of them go into landfill every year. But a former banana grower is on a mission to change that. Tanya Murphy stopped by Mark Jackson's factory in far north Queensland to find out how he plans to reduce the tide of plastic waste on banana farms. Banana bags are put on when the fruit develops in the early stages of development. It protects against wind damage, leaf damage, insects and pests. Uh, it also creates a microenvironment under the bag to help fill the bananas so that they, within 12 weeks they can be harvested. Traditional banana bags can be reused a small number of times, but they're not recyclable. So how many banana bags would you say are going into landfill every year, roughly? 
You know, I'd, I'd estimate that there's about 20 million bags used a year and say, uh, you know, four times use. So about 5 million would be sent to landfill uh, each year. They can't be recycled because of the mixed polymers and also they have a lot of paint on them. So that has led to you getting the idea for a 100% recyclable banana bag. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, I've been working with uh, Dow Chemicals now for about 12 months on producing a non-woven inner bag made from polyethylene, which the outside bag's made from polyethylene. The current bag has a non-woven inner liner of polypropylene, and those two polymers can't be mixed when they're recycled. So they have to be separated, which is very labour-intensive. By using a polyethylene inner and outer, it's uh, one polymer, single polymer, easy and very easy to recycle. I understand you'll go round to the farms and collect the used bags and recycle them, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we've just started putting bins out right now for farms. The farms that buy their plastic off me, we provide that as a free service. The bags should be the same cost as what they're paying now, if not a bit cheaper. The machine that I've got coming is fully automated, so we, we won't need a lot of people for labour. So not only does recycling the bags reduce waste, it also removes the need for you to import the plastics from overseas. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's a number of issues with importing. When you import bags, you have to have a size, one size fits all, which, which doesn't actually work. So some growers want them two metres long, some growers might want them 1.6 metres long. So to be able to make them in Australia, they can be personalised to the grower's needs. But also we've just been through two years of uh, COVID where shipping uh, was scarce and also the prices increased phenomenally. There was also a time when non-woven wasn't available. So these things uh, affect the supply to our customers. By making them locally in Australia, we should be able to uh, rectify all those issues and plus be cost effective as well since we're not paying huge amounts of freight and exchange rate differentials. So I understand to produce this recyclable banana bag, you're acquiring that new machine with help from a Queensland government grant. When do you expect to have that up and running and for these new recyclable bags to be available? Yeah, the funding was provided by the Business Growth Fund from the Queensland government. So the machine has been ordered. Uh, I just imagine that it'll be shipped um, in the next month or so to Australia and hopefully we're up and running by May, June of this year. That's Mark Jackson from Global Fruit Protection. He was speaking with Tanya Murphy about his efforts to reduce plastic waste on banana farms. Shoot underneath the great catch! Monday, ABC Sports Summer of Cricket continues. This is a one-dayer you don't want to miss. Catch all the action of the women's one-day international between Australia and Pakistan. Every ball, every catch, every wicket and every big kit. Australia v Pakistan, live from Brisbane. It's perfect! On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. Yes, because of that one-day international, things will be a little bit different on Monday's program. If you usually tune into the Country Hour in your car or on the wireless, you'll be hearing the cricket. But you can still listen to the Country Hour from 12.30, Channel 25 on your telly 
on the ABC Listen app. You can listen online. If you just search NT Country Hour, it will pop up. Otherwise, if all else fails, there's the podcast you can tune back to and get it wherever you typically get your podcasts. Have a great weekend. It's 1.30.